0: Um, happy Sabbath. I'm glad we get to spend this time worshiping together and and studying God's Word. Um, I hope you've had a good week. This week has been a good week for us. Um, as things are transitioning back into a normal schedule, it feels really good to just kind of have time to... Um, kind of get back into the normal rhythms of life and so i i hope you've had a good week Uh, a couple weeks ago we started plugging different uh, video series from right now media and i wanted to plug another sermon series this morning um it's entitled you'll get through this by uh, max lucado and um cool now um i've been watching this sermon series and um I've I've it's a six-part sermon series uh, on the story of Joseph and the series covers how Joseph faced difficult circumstances and yet his faith remained constant and uh, Max McCalla does a really good job of sharing different principles highlighted throughout the story of Joseph and I, I think that a lot of these principles have um a, a, have a lot of good present-day relevance. Um I don't know if you've ever thought uh how am I going to get through my current difficulty or if you've wondered Where is God in my current struggle? If you've thought those thoughts over the past couple months, this series uh, will be helpful to you. Uh, I think the stories in the Bible are helpful in that If God was able to work in the past in the lives of uh, the people in Scripture, then God is willing to work in our lives in the same way in the present. And I think that there are principles in the Bible that are timeless, they're relevant, and as we give space for God to step into our lives, then we can experience Him And then we can also share with others how God has interacted in our lives. And so um, I hope that if the series is of interest to you, that you'll have time to uh, check it out. If you have access to Right Now Media, once again, the series title or the sermon series is entitled You'll Get Through This by Max Licato. If you do not have access to Right Now Media and you would like access, just contact myself or Jinha, and we will be able to send you an invite via email. And um, we're happy to we're happy to give you access, even if you're not a member of our church and you're interested in uh, Right Now Media as a resource in general. Feel free and contact us. Um, this may be the first time that you've heard of Right Now Media. It's probably one of the largest uh, data uh, the the largest resources for med- Christian media on the internet right now. And so um, on this website, there are various different. Uh, there's a wide range of topics from um, um, Christian counseling to apologetics to theology to youth topics. Um, there's just there are thousands and thousands of videos uh, on this website. So feel free to contact us. We're happy to give you access. So today we're going to be going into part three of... Um, of the fruit of the spirit, and the sermon title is called Agents of Peace. And I just can I get access to the uh, thank you? Nope, can you click on the thank you? Okay, and so uh, today's today's uh, message is entitled Agents of Peace, which is part three of our uh, sermon series on the fruit of the spirit. So, just covering some uh, background and what uh, some of the material that we've covered in the past uh, in the first Uh, message, we covered how virtues can inform what or who we strive to become, and those virtues, or excuse me, having a compass for our character can help lead, guide, and direct our lives. We talked about the love of God, and how God's love is unmerited, God's love is steadfast, and God's love is a suffering love. And then last time when we talked about joy, we talked about how joy cannot be pursued for its own sake. Rather, joy is a byproduct whose very existence presupposes that you desire not it, but something other and outer, which is a quote from C.S. Lewis. So today we're going to be talking about peace and uh, just reading through the text that we've been going through over the past few sessions, uh, which is Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such there is no law so today we're going to be talking about peace uh if you've been reading global news or if you've surfed the newsfeed on facebook i'm sure you would have seen the escalation of, of peaceful protests in the u.s which have turned into uh rioting and looting um as a result of that uh, my facebook news feed just kind of blew up and there were so many posts explaining systemic racism and then there were other posts of people responding to those posts uh, with poli- uh, political commentators uh, kind of debunking or attempting to debunk systemic racism and there was just there was so much facebook feuding going on this week and i couldn't help it but i just got sucked into the comments, and I wanted to respond to every single one of them. I don't know if you've ever been in that position. I, for the most part, I, I had good self-control, but it was just such an interesting um, thing to look at. And I think it's quite providential that the topic for today is entitled Peace, or How to Be Agents of Peace. When we look at the Bible, uh, the Bible defines peace in a very unique way in that uh, peace is often described in the negative. In other words, peace is the absence of conflict. But in Scripture, uh, the Bible talks of peace in the positive. In other words, um, peace is more of a wholeness. Uh, Peace is often connected to the idea of salvation, so if you look at Isaiah 52 verse 7, um, there's this Hebrew literary feature uh, called parallelism where it states an idea and then it repeats the idea using different words to give a broader picture of what that initial statement actually means. And so the passage says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And so, peace is like this holistic approach to life. The Bible rarely speaks of peace purely as a state of mind. Um, Rather, peace is a way of life. Um, There are a few verses here that I'd like to bring your attention to. And if you look through Luke 168 and 79, if you look at Isaiah 59, verse 8 and Matthew five verses 9, each time the word or the idea of peace is mentioned, it's 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 a way of life, it's a way that we um conduct ourselves. And something that's really important in the Bible is that peace is relational. So in the old testament, the word for peace is shalom. And the word for peace in the New Testament is arene. Both words refer to a state of being, its wholeness, its harmony that infuses all of our relationships. So as a result, in the Bible, peace is inherently social. So peace is about our relationship with one another in the context of our relationship with God. So then If one is at peace simply with themselves, they're not really, they're not really experiencing the fullness of peace, um, in the way that the Bible is talking about it. I think peace today is increasingly becoming a private experience, um, rather than a communal goal. A harmony and unity within diversity is becoming increasingly difficult. Uh, I'll highlight just a couple of reasons why I think this happens. First is that in the past, uh, we've conditioned ourselves to keep our private opinions private and normally we're happy to voice our thoughts, uh, thoughts out in public, uh, when there's widespread agreement. But generally when there is an agreement, it's easier to keep our opinions, um, to ourselves. So things like religion, things like politics, things like our loyalty to Collingwood, all of those things are private matters, um. And there are just some differences that cannot be resolved. And I suppose, uh, there, uh, those things cannot be resolved because there isn't really a universal process of working through our differences. Or there are other times where we've had um, a, a, a controversial discussion and the discussion gets so emotionally charged that the experience becomes negative and we tend to just kind of close off and keep our opinions to ourselves because we don't want to deeply offend others. So then what happens is that we keep our opinions to ourselves or we share them with people who agree with us, and then the result is that our personal opinions, they, they never get tested. So the question is, how does one know that they are right if they've only seen their own, uh, their own point of view? Now, I acknowledge that on social media, it's becoming more of a norm for people to publicly share their personal opinions. But I find that the majority of time... Um, People aren't really listening, or they're not genuinely considering or listening to opposing views. And as a result, people aren't entering into open dialogue. They're just entrenching themselves deeper into their own worldviews. And the general trend that I see um, is that society is becoming just more and more fragmented. The second reason why I think there's less peace and harmony in Western culture is that we value individualism. We value freedom. We value autonomy. And so we, inf- we feel entitled to say and believe what we want because we have the right to do so. Philip Kennison has some valuable insight into this idea. He says, The assumption behind rights language is that we need to be protected from one another. By encouraging us to view each other as potential threats to our well-being, we inadvertently create a culture that thrives on adversarial relationships. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that free speech is bad. I'm not saying that freedom is bad. I'm saying that these valuable freedoms are dividing society because humanity is flawed. So there are Aussies who feel that it's their right to tell Chinese students to go back home. So then the Chinese media feel it's their right to tell people, don't go to Australia, they're racists. Some Americans feel it's their right to protest while other Americans... Uh, while other Americans feel like it's their right to protest the protests. So instead of bringing about peace and happiness, our rights and our freedoms are bringing about conflict and division. So in Matthew chapter 24, verses 8, to, uh, 8 12 to 13, Jesus told his disciples what would happen during the end times. He says, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So right at the time before the second coming, Jesus says there's going to be conflict. People are just going to hate each other. He continues, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, it's going to get harder and harder to give love, compassion, and mercy to each other. So much to the point where many, not a few, are going to stop loving And I like how the verse ends. It's this huge challenge to us as Christians. It says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus says, I want you to have this supernatural ability to love the way that I do. I don't want you to give up on humanity. Even when you have every right to even give up or excuse me, if you have every right to get even or give up, love till the end that doesn 't mean that we have to make every difficult person our best friend. Uh, it means that God wants us to be willing to reconcile because that is what he is like it 's by practicing the same kind of love that God is then glorified. So in Romans chapter five verses ten to eleven, an example of god 's love, an example of god 's reconciliation is given. The text says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So there's this incredible example in scripture of God taking the first step while we are While we are enemies of God, while we have no interest in God, while our lives are not right, God takes that first step and says, I'm willing to reconcile. Many of you know that my mom passed away when I was in high school. I was about 15 years old at the time. And um, about a year after my mom passed away, the church aunties started doing auntie things. They tried uh, introducing my dad to other women. And about a year after my mother passed away, my dad kind of cautiously carefully approached me and asked me hey Roy how do you feel about me getting to know other women and how do you feel about me dating other women and i told him i'm i'm not quite ready at this point in time and so my dad waited he waited and then he waited some more and finally my dad uh, my brother came up to me and he's like hey our dad is not going to get older you you have to let him try and move on here and so i reluctantly agreed and my dad met somebody from canada and they started dating and about a year later uh things got really serious and they were thinking about marriage and so my dad had kind of this uh this chat with his uh with his girlfriend and he said hey look i am interested in marriage but i just need you to know that I am not financially stable, and if you step into our family, it's just important for you to expect that there are going to be challenges um, with our with our economic, um, we're going to have challenges in that area. And so she, at the time, said, look, I don't mind, I'm ready for this, let's get married. And so they got married, and she moved in with us. Now, for the first two years, um, they went through this honeymoon phase and even though they argued a bit here and there, uh, they were able to reconcile and and it worked out well. But after two years, I think the reality of living in a poor family sunk in and the arguments became more frequent and, um, they increased in intensity in terms of she was just really, really unhappy. Well, uh, another year passed by and I, uh came home one day and she was no longer around and I asked my dad uh, where you know where is where is your wife and and my dad kind of looked at me and he said uh she's she's left she's gone back to Canada well years passed by and my dad receives a phone call from his ex-wife she has a niece who is flying from Korea And she wants to study in Seattle about 45 minutes away from our house. And so my dad's ex-wife asks him, hey, can you help out my niece? Can you help her get settled in, help her find an apartment? Uh, To which my dad responds, yeah, I'm I'm happy to do that. Of course... Being an immigrant, he doesn't know the first thing about finding an apartment, so he comes to my brother and I, and he's like, hey guys, can you, can you help us out? And we're just, we're livid. Like, we're asking, why would you help this woman's niece? Just tell her to go figure it out. And my dad pulled rank, and my brother ended up having to help this, uh, help this young girl find an apartment. Well, my dad, over the course of three years, or four years, made it his mission to look after this young girl. Um, every time uh, this girl needed to go get groceries or run errands that required a vehicle, my dad would drive 45 minutes to where she was. He would pick her up and take her around town and do whatever she needed to do. Uh, Any time... Uh, this young girl had a friend who flew in from Korea. My dad would fly to the airport and, um, and give this girl a ride and just run airport runs for, for, um, um, his ex-wife's niece and her friends. So one year, Thanksgiving rolled around and my dad asks us, um, Hey, how do you feel about me inviting this young girl to our house for a Thanksgiving meal? And, Our response was very similar to the first time he asked us for help, and our question was, why are you going out of your way to help this person? Like, you don't need to do this. Well, my dad pulled rank again, and this time it was my turn to go drive up to Seattle, pick up this young girl, and bring her to our house. And just over the course of the meal, it just kind of, it was a bit surreal because my dad would just go above and beyond to make this young girl feel welcome. He would, uh, refill her cup every time she finished her drink, every time she would empty her plate, he would say, would you like more food? And I just, I just kinda shook my head. And as I drove this Girl, home. Um, I just I couldn't help but notice she had such a strong resemblance to my dad's ex-wife. And so when I get back home, I find him in his room, and I just say, "Man, that girl, that girl looks a lot like your ex-wife." And he turned to me. He said, "Yeah, um, my ex-wife had a twin sister, and that's her daughter." And I just kind of I was floored because in my mind I thought about every time. He put food on her plate. Every time he refilled that glass, he's looking into the eyes of his ex-wife. You know, I asked him, why Why did you do this? Like, you've never actually answered our question. You just kind of brush it aside and make us do what you want us to do. But why? You don't have to be nice to this person. And he looked at me and said, you know, God's love is amazing. That There's so much pain in my heart. That if I don't forgive, it'll drive me crazy. But being able to give makes my heart feel so good. You know, my dad's ex-wife, she never came back to him. And from that experience, I learned something important about forgiveness from my dad. And that's forgiveness doesn't always fix the relationship. It doesn't always change the other party. But forgiveness always, always heals you and you know i think that's that's what god's point is that at the time of the closing of earth's history and as we trek along in our own lives forgiveness becomes more and more difficult it gets harder and harder to love people um it's you know i i think a lot of times we we have this optimistic view of humanity that it's going to get better and in a lot of areas things are getting better but Also, in a lot of areas, things are getting more difficult. And here, God gives this, I guess, this command, this challenge, and even this encouragement to keep pressing on. Because in doing so, it will preserve your heart. And in doing so, you will bring glory to God. Because you get to share, this is what God is like. You know, our differences cause us to have bias. But with God, there is no bias. He values everyone. There's this passage in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's a record of the very last thing that Jesus said to his disciples. He said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so Jesus' message to his disciples was, Go and share the good news that God forgives. That message was not a local message. Right from the beginning, the church was supposed to consider globalization. In its very ecclesiology, there's a call for the church to embrace unity with diversity. How are the disciples Who were Jews, who were isolated from the rest of the world. How are these people supposed to then go to other cultures, other, um, other languages, other peoples, and then extend fellowship? How are they supposed to share this message of reconciliation? There's a call for the church to embrace unity within diversity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 14, So in its very, in the very fabric of the church, there is this diversity and God recognized it right from the beginning and said, practice unity, practice unity. The church is such a unique place. And I repeat this several times, but I think it just bears repeating, um, that there's so much potential in the church to be this incredible example of what community can be. There's, some research done by Pew uh, Research and uh, there are two um, two tables that give two different bits of information. Uh, the table on the left that you're looking at is a ethnic breakdown of each of the major uh, religions, not just Christian denominations, but world religions in the U.S. I tried finding this for Australia, but I wasn't able to um, find this information. But This is what different world religions look like in the U.S. Uh, the table on the right that you're looking at is a political breakdown. In other words, um, how American, how, how religious Americans vote in, in the U.S. And what I want to do is just highlight, um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you're looking at the left table or the left chart, you'll find that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has the most diversity out of not just any Christian denomination, but out of any world religion. It has the most diversity out of any world religion. In other words, our church, our message, the way that we conduct ourselves is conducive to diversity. So then naturally, if you're going to have a difference of ethnic background in your church, you're going to have a difference or you're going to have a diversity of political um, representation as well. So if you look at the Seventh-day Adventist church information for the political preferences in the right uh, chart, we're right about the middle there somewhere. Um, it'll say Seventh-day Adventist church. It's right uh, below the Episcopal church. Um, yeah, right below the Episcopal church. <laughs> I'm like squinting my eyes. This feels like it's an eye exam. But you'll notice that we also have one of the most broad representations of uh, uh, political representations in our church. Our church is diverse. This church is supposed to be a place that embraces diversity. It's supposed to be a melting pot, a place where we learn from our differences, where we embrace our diversity. In Ephesians chapter three, verses seven to 10. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. I just want to leave it on this, um, on this slide for just a second. Now, as you're kind of digesting this text, um, I just want to share that I believe that the Melbourne City Adventist Church is unique. We are ethnically diverse. We are politically diverse. We are spiritually diverse and we have the opportunity to reveal the mysterious manifold wisdom of God to the community around us and that is to present to the community around us what it means to be a people of peace. What it means to remain committed to each other. What it means to listen and learn from one another. What it means to embrace diversity and reflect to those around us. Um, What it means to have Christ at the center of our lives. Now I recognize that this sermon can be very idealistic. There will always be that person in your life um, who is out to get you. Um, how How does one remain peaceful when your opposition is hostile? And I get that the answer isn't always cut and dry and how to be a person of peace, let's say in a work environment when there's that just, that one person who just wants to get under your skin. Uh, how do you, how do you respond to that? And for me, um, one of the stories in the Bible that are most helpful in this, in this space is the story of David. Um, and the story of David can be found, well, it's actually, um, the story of Saul and the story of David. And it's covered in 1 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, chapters 9 to chapters 31, and uh, I, I highly encourage you, if you are facing significant um, personal conflict with uh, a hostile opponent, this these chapters, uh, I find, are quite helpful because David responds so well in this one particular um, circumstance. As you read through the story, you're going to find David is a incredibly flawed individual, but in this one space of personal conflict, he handles himself uh, with a lot of wisdom. Uh, I need to start by showing uh, some copyright information. Um, I'm, I've gathered about eleven pictures from uh, free Bible illustrations, and uh, part of the agreement of me using these pictures is uh, sharing with you where I've where I've gotten these pictures. <laughs> so. Uh, Here we go. So the story of David and Saul starts out uh, with Saul getting rejected by God. He has been selected as the king of Israel, and he starts out really strong and he uh, fights off the enemies of Israel, but he makes this mistake where he um, sacrifices uh he makes a sacrifice when he's supposed to wait for Samuel and Samuel who is this uh white-haired bearded individual tells Samuel uh, tells Saul because you've done this um, God is taking the kingdom away from you so then what happens next is that uh Samuel then goes and finds uh Saul's heir uh and he finds his heir in David and he has to anoint David in secret and so nobody knows what Samuel has told David, nobody knows that David is going to be the next king. Now, what happens next in the story is that, um, David becomes a, uh, well-known commander and a well-praised commander in the army of Saul, um, early on, excuse me, early on in David's military career, he defeats Goliath, and Saul kind of recruits him to be this uh, military leader in his in his army. And what happens is David has a series of successes, and people just start getting, uh, uh, people celebrate David's victories. And what happens is Saul starts getting jealous of David, and he starts wondering, and he starts sensing, is David going to be the one that takes the kingdom away from me? Well, as his jealousy grows, uh, there comes a point, there comes a breaking point where, uh, Saul just gets so tired of David's successes that he tries to, uh, take his life. And so David ends up running away into the wilderness. And as he hides in the wilderness, um, all the, these different warriors throughout Israel, um, decide to follow David and they, leave their homes, they leave where they are, and they go seek out David, and they ask him, hey, we want to join you, because we feel like you're going to be the next king of Israel. And so Saul finds out uh, about this group of rebels, and uh, over the course of years, Saul begins to pursue David through the wilderness, around mountains, and there's so many instances where Saul is just right next to David, but through God's providence, God protects David. Now here's where our principles of um, conflict resolution or uh, peacekeeping come into play. There are several times where Saul puts himself in a vulnerable situation. There's one story where David is hiding in a cave. Saul doesn't know it. And he enters the cave that David is in to relieve himself and to rest. And What happens is is that as Saul is resting in this cave, David's men come to him and they say, hey, God has placed Saul right in front of you. Take him out. You have the opportunity. Just wipe him out and you'll be king. And David looks at this opportunity and decides, "I, I cannot do this. I am not going to proactively take out my opponent because this is something that I believe only God can do. God instated Saul into power, and God is going to be the one that takes him out. And so what David does is, as this story, I'm not sure that it's an accurate representation, but the story goes that Saul is is resting, and David comes behind him, and he cuts a corner of his cloak off. And when Saul leaves the cave, David yells out after Saul and says, Saul, I had the opportunity to take you out. And I chose not to. And this happens multiple times where Saul recognizes I could have died. And then he goes back home. He gets jealous again. And he goes back out and chases after David. And there's a cycle that happens. And each time that David has an opportunity to, to take out Saul, he chooses not to. He practices peace. There are times where. You will have in your power and in your ability to take out your opponent. And the reason why I like the story of David is because David recognizes that he's playing the long game. He's not making decisions for the short term. He's making decisions for the long term. He's saying my reputation and how I conduct myself is going to matter. And so he practices peace. Our final Text for today is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. And Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. This verse is such a unique one, and, and I feel Weird to kind of preach about leaving room so that the wrath of God can do what it needs to do. And maybe I'd word it this way. God is saying there are things that are beyond your control. And when you try and take control of those things, you will lose yourself. So don't take revenge. Let me step into that place and let me enact justice and judgment. I would tell stories about things that happen in my life, but uh, it 's just one of those things where it 's even awkward to talk about, but I can definitely say there are moments where you if when you pray and you say, "God, please step into this moment because please please step into this situation because it 's too difficult, and i 'm not sure what the right thing to do i, I don 't I don't know what is the right thing to do, and God then steps in and he will fix what you cannot fix. And that doesn't mean that it's easy. It's difficult because you're going to feel like people are walking all over you. You're going to feel helpless. And, and that isn't a normal human response to difficult circumstances. But yet in this verse is this promise. And so I hope that as you practice the principle of peace, as you give space for God to act, that you can then experience God uh, that you can experience the God of peace and you can become that person of peace. May God bless you. Would you join me in prayer as we finish? Father God, we come before you today, and as we consider the world events around us, as we consider the increase of fragmentation and division in in the world around us, we pray that you would teach us as a church, teach us as a people uh, to be Agents of peace to practice reconciliation, uh, to be an example to the community around us of what it's like, uh, to be a part of the family of God. And we just ask that you would step into our lives, that you would work in mighty ways. We pray this in your way, in your name. Amen.